0: So welcome. How many um, folks are new here? New to the CIMC? Anybody new to uh, Insight Meditation? Okay. Good. How many folks have done a lot of practice? Heard a lot of talks. Okay So there's a lot of people in between too. Good. Um, what I'd like to reflect on tonight is uh, a, a sutta, a classical teaching of the Buddha, and actually it's the same, um, it's the same thing as the workshops on on Saturday, um, that I think gets at the heart of an approach to practice that is very full. And everybody talks about formal practice and daily life being, in a way, seamless, or a lot of people do, right? Um, and this is another angle on that, and I think this sutta does a really wonderful job of being fully inclusive. So it's, it's based, I'll give a the, the story of the, where the teaching comes from, and then we'll just work our way through the different aspects of it. And I hope that it's beneficial. You'll get some education, some Dharma education, uh, that's teachings of the Buddha, to help us to get it a bit freer, perhaps. Um, and hopefully you'll get some practice, uh, some helpful practice tips as well, okay? So there was a... <clears throat> there was a bamboo acrobat and his assistant. Actually, it's, it's gender-neutral, and if you look at the terms, but we'll just, this is the, this is the translation I'm using, okay? So um, there was a, an acrobat and his assistant and her name was Meda Kalika. Just call her Meda from now. And back in the day, so this is way back, time of the Buddha, they had this uh, little act. It's called a bamboo, maybe Blue Man Group has it now, I don't know. Like a bamboo acrobat, where you have a, a couple, I guess, two people, and one person climbs up and does an act, and the other one holds the pole, or I don't know, that's, that's all I can figure out, okay? But it's a team, it's an act, and they both need to be involved skillfully in doing it. So this uh, this team, they had a little debate about what was the best way to do their job. So the more experienced acrobat said, or the chief acrobat said to the assistant, "I will do it best by that. We'll do our best if I take care of you, so I watch out after you, and you watch out after me." That should be the priority. And Maeda, Maeda Kalika, said, No, teacher, that won't do at all. I watch out after me. I'll take care of myself. You take care of yourself. That's the best way to do it. So, who was right? Who knows the sutta? Good. Who was right? Was she right? Take care of yourself first. Was he right? Take care of other first. Neither one was right. They're both right. Yeah. Yes. So then, so they go to the Buddha because I don't know why, but the Buddha seems to be nearby. This, I guess, the Buddha wasn't supposed to go out for many entertainments, but there was nearby this this uh, traveling circus or whatever. So they went and they asked the Buddha who was right. And he responded, basically, that yes, uh, Medha, you are right. Taking care of oneself is the priority. And then he said, also, teacher, you are right. Taking care of other is the priority. And then he gave this essential teaching. He said, he didn't stop there. He said, in taking care of self or in protecting oneself, One protects others. And in protecting others, or taking care of others, one protects or takes care of oneself. So let's explore that. And that's what our our undertaking is for this evening. To explore these, what is it? To take care of self. And then relating that to how does that take care of others. And then taking care of others or protecting others. And explore these terms a bit and how that protects ourself. And it gives, some, it gives some really interesting insights, both into very practical things, but also into a really deep journey, the Dharma journey, of uncovering what is suffering and, and uh, what is unnecessary, and how we become, can become freer in ourselves and in our relational lives. So first, when we think of taking care of ourself, well, it's pretty simple. What do we think of taking care of ourselves? Means taking care of our bodies, right? Exercise, food, taking care of you know, doing a good job in the world, so we have can can live a good, full life. So there's one level of taking care, which is just it's really immediate for ourselves. And then there's the level which leads our actions in relation to. Our bodies, our exercise, food, and everything, which is the mind, right? And the Buddha's, the Buddha teaching, the Dharma teachings are concerned really with taking care of the mind and the heart. It's said in the Dhammapada that everything, that's one of the early teachings of the Buddha, uh, sort of very classic early, early teaching. Um, actually, it was put together in a book, which is like the closest thing there is to an early Buddhist Bible. <laughs> it's in Sri Lanka and so that the opening phrases of this little of this little book are the mind is the forerunner of everything of all things and with a mind that is (coughs) a mind that is has the right qualities in it it leads to happiness and a mind that has the qualities that are unskillful it leads to suffering so there's this there's this real emphasis throughout on the importance of the heart the mind and so taking care, and then when we take when we, physical actions and taking care of our bodies, etc., it comes from the mind, because the mind leads the body. So when we look at the sutta, the teaching, and the, the Buddha's asked, well, how do you take care of the self? Well, you're to practice mindfulness and to practice it a lot. So I, I read a number of commentaries it's kind of fun. I'll be mixing some of the language in that I think is, is uh, most relevant. <laughs> how, many, how many people here practice, think they're mindfulness practitioners? Are we, that we have a mindfulness practice in some way? Right. Uh, and on one level, mindfulness is, are people familiar with the four foundations of mindfulness? So it means we pay attention in the present moment to the body, to the breath, we get grounded and anchored there, and then we learn to slowly expand that so that we can be in touch with the kind of pleasure or discomfort underneath, right? Not be pulled around, but be awake and present. And then working with the mind directly. And then seeing everything change. right? So there are what are called four foundations, or these establishments of mindfulness. So the recommendation is to, pr- to protect yourself, to practice these four foundations of mindfulness, and to do it a lot. We need to, don't we? You notice when you just do it a little bit? Right? You say, I'll be mindful for, I'll be present for a little bit. And then we decide not to be for a while. Well, you got to do it a lot. Okay? Um, so, one way to look at it is, is this fullness of the four foundations of mindfulness. But underlying this, and of central importance, is <laughs> working with the mind directly. So, one of the, one of the wonderful uh, Commentaries on this uh, this teaching it's by a man named Anilayo, and he says that you need to become familiar. So when we take care of ourselves or protect ourselves, we need to become familiar with our own mind. Develop it, protect it. So we have to begin to work, and we use the other foundations, right? The body, the breath, to start to have this ability to work with our own minds. Well, if we're protecting ourselves, and the mind is really in the forefront of everything, then we have to protect our minds. But what are we protecting our minds from? From ourselves. We're protecting our minds from certain qualities of mind and heart, that when we don't be able to, when we can't work with them, they cause trouble. We all know in our compul- whatever compulsive patterns we have, right? If we, if we can't work with it, if we, if we don't get to know the mind and work with it skillfully, then we get stuck in mechanical habit energies and reactivity, and that's probably why a lot of us are here, right? We're here, it's good for us. We can break out of certain patterns, certain cycles that cause ourselves harm and others harm. So, there are three underlying energies which are what are called the kind of the obscurations in the mind, the things we have to work with. And then they have a lot of, they're like the parents, I don't know why there are three of them. But, uh, and then there's a lot of children, there's a lot of different ways they manifest. And so they're the mind, basically, that wants, that just wants, wants, or greedy, right? grasping mind, or the mind that's pushing things away, anger, fear, or actually just stay with anger, it's like a aversive mind. We know, we know both of those pretty well, right? And then there's the mind that just doesn't see clearly. She doesn't, she doesn't see. And <clears throat> our emotions get mixed up in these energies and our thought patterns and they cause suffering. So when we get stuck in reactive patterns, in a way our minds gets locked and we get frozen. You notice how that happens? like when we're right and someone else is wrong, or when we're wrong and someone else is right and we're sure of it and we're no good. You know the loops we play. Our mind gets stuck and we have an energy that's pushing or wanting. Our mind gets stuck in the thoughts and the emotions. And the mind becomes frozen. The heart becomes like lodged. It becomes identified, solid in a way. And how much freedom is there in that? Not a lot. So said that the mind is like, when, when we're stuck and we're, we're caught in these energies, that it's like the, the heart, the mind, there's a quality of... It's the same heart and mind, but it's in a form, right? That's it's very solid, very op- oppositional, separating. It's like it's frozen in a way. So, and underlying a lot of our energies, of these energies, is a qual of, of the emotions underneath things is, is fear of something. It's like we don't want to let go of a desire. We don't want to let go of being right or wrong, our opinions. We don't want to, ha- we don't want to change our relationship, but in that change, when, if we can start to see and work work with our energies, then uh, very much, we can change. We can start to change our hearts and our minds. So um, we think sometimes we have to get rid of like what we call this aversion or like you know wanting and not wanting. I think we have to be like poster people for mindfulness. Um, but it's 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 a little different than that. So I really like this quote by William Blake. He says, "Those who enter the gates of heaven don't need this." are not those who have no passions or have curbed the passions, but rather those who have cultivated an understanding of them. So it's not those that have gotten rid of these energies, just gotten rid of them, like they're bad and wrong, but have cultivated an understanding, and there are different levels of that, but have a relationship with these energies. So that's what the sutta is saying, is the first part of protecting yourself is starting to have a relationship some understanding in relation to these energies of the mind and the heart that when unexamined, well, we act in ways where we're not protecting ourselves. We're not protecting the quality of our heart and our minds. So how do we practice? How do we practice this protection? How do we create the conditions where we can get to know ourselves, right? Get to know these energies. Have a different relationship with them. Well, then we enter the very, the, what, We're practicing in our path. And the first quality of that is learning to just calm and steady the mind. It's very simple. We take a breath. We've done a little bit of it, haven't we? Like right now, if you tune into, like, feeling your body sitting or a breath or sensation or just seeing, or just being present in any way, in that moment, just check it out right now, in this moment, when we do that, but when it happens, sometimes we don't even have to try. It just, it's just naturally happening. What happens, to those, what happens to our relationship to whatever strong energies we're working? Do we get a little space? Right? We, get, we begin to create a, a place where we're present. And there's a safety in that presence. So in daily life, we learn in our practice to take mindful pauses, don't we? How many people practice mindful pauses in your day? Like maybe when you're driving, you'll feel yourself sitting. You'll feel your hands on the wheel. I like to feel the excelling. now. <laughs> we'll just feel ourselves really there. Or what are other people... Name a couple of things people do for, like, just like in your day, little pauses you take, like it's kind of systematically. You kind of train them. Not, it's not formal. Anybody... Like I really try when I um, actually have a like when I feed the cats, which stinks. The cat food stinks. I really try to like when I'm doing the can and everything. It's like a little mindfulness, like a little mindfulness spell. It's okay, feed the cat. Like I really take that time and I'm just like I really give it my full attention and other things go away. I create that little there's that pause. So we have mindfulness pauses. You know, some people like Thich Nhat Hanh, he has a lot of exercises, you know, my really wonderful daily. All, washing dishes is great, it's really good. Things that are really kind of simple, and like, there's so many of them. He had one where you're like, supposed to breathe before you pick up the phone. That's a good one, especially if you don't want to answer it, you just keep breathing. But One of my, he was, one of my friends was over, he was a teacher from India, and and. Uh, he he's teaches in that tradition, and his wife had calling him from India, and he hadn't talked to her for three weeks, and he kept breathing. The phone kept ringing, he kept breathing. My other friend in the room said, pick up the phone, it's your wife. So, so you've got to do things reasonably. But there's a lot of opportunities to create a little pause, to get a little space. And then what's the way that, how many people have a sitting practice at home? Yeah, that's like a bigger, that's like a bigger pause, isn't it? And when we sit and that's what we're doing, we're actually stepping away and we're renewing ourselves. We know, you know, we we renew, we create space, we have an inner resource. And it becomes, the momentum of that energy becomes a protection. Doesn't it feel like that? How many people feel like they've actually got some protection in their hearts because they they really learn to be present, formally and in daily life, like formal practice a retreat or sitting and then also just taking moments to really wake up in life, that it starts to, we actually start to feel like we're, there's some protection in our heart. How many people have had that experience? Even a little bit. Good. So, is he was a great, one of the early uh, Western scholars, and he was a deep practitioner of this stuff. He, he, was, he was in Sri Lanka. I had a chance to, to work with him a little bit in the 80s in the 1980s. Um, he, he says that, and he says that when you meditate and you, pract- the, and you do the practical and emotional and intellectual, all the things that go with practice, okay, we get self-protection, and this will, and I like this very much, this will become our personal property in a way. Now, I know we're not, we'll, we'll move on to the next level where it's not about personal property. But we're very invested. Think about how much in our lives we're invested in our possessions as a place of protection and safety our homes, our cars, our jobs, our bank, how much money we have in the bank, et cetera, right? But we. It's, it, it, I really think it's very important. And, I, and what he does here is it becomes a protection. How much you can wake up in our life and actually have a quality of protecting our hearts and minds, that that is a, it's like a possession. And if we cultivate it and grow it, it's, he goes on to say, it's not something that will be easily lost. So it's an inner quality. It's like we're saving for retirement, right? I don't know if you, well, if you, if you do my work, you don't save much. You just you probably never retire, but that's okay because you love what you're doing. I hope you're in that boat if you have to keep working. <laughs> So we want, to, we want to save so we have something later, but when we practice mindfulness, when we cultivate it, we get some continuity and it becomes a resource. It becomes a protection of the heart so we can rely on and count on. And so that's one type of protection. So as we take more pauses as our practice, our formal practice of calming and studying, whether it be in little bits in the day or formal practice, as that grows, as we learn to tune into being present and that becomes more not perfectly continuous but it becomes more of a kind of an underlying habit energy which does happen in practice right so we learn we learn to just settle back and be more present it becomes instead of just racing we see the energy and whew, okay be present now here when that grows then We move from the quality of practice, which is like calming and steadying. And most of what modern mindfulness is in in the West, really in this country, it's just, we're just getting a little calm. We're getting little bits of calm. And then to turn it into insight, and this is an insight meditation center, um, then we have to use that to see into the nature of experience in a way that changes our relationship to it, that makes us see its nature, and see into a different nature of our own heart and mind, that can, that can hold it differently. And so we need, we need more continuity to do that. And then these underlying structures where our thoughts and our emotions and everything get, get bottled up, they get frozen, they get... it starts to melt. <coughs> we start to see into. I'm sure we've all experienced that with or without practice but it, it works more deeply with practice, like a strong emotion that we believe in, that we get stuck in. Sometimes if we're really present, if we can pause, or if it's just naturally, we're naturally more interested and present, we see it, and sometimes it just doesn't get us. We see it, and it arises and passes away. It could be an emotion, a thought, it can be sound, it could be anything. We start to see that the nature of experience moves. It's fluid, it doesn't stay, static, doesn't freeze. And so then our hearts start to, to lose And I really love the analogy of this like ice to, to flowing water because it's the same stuff. It's the same. It's not different than our hearts. It's just that we start to change. We see into, and the quality of the seeing, actually, it feels like it melts things. Okay. So we get fixated, and here's the deeper protection when we start to see into experience, we see in changing nature, we find often that there's not this kind of separate center. There's not this battleground underlying it. Me versus you, me versus me. When you see into change, it starts to break up, You start to see space. There's, there's a kind of, there's a quality of, of freedom. there's no fixed center or self, and that's the greatest protection. So how many people have heard of no-self? Mm. Right? It's kind of like the, it's like the t- teaching of Dharma. Like, oh, no-self. No and then people turn it into something. They turn it into this great thing, no-self. Well, you can't do that either. Because <laughs> then you're creating a notion, uh, and you're, you know, we identify with it, and then we become like, separate. But it's not about that. It's about actually having such a deep intimate relationship with experience that we see into and in a way through. And there's freedom. And there's no fixed center, no fixed self. And it's a tremendous relief. Tremendous. When we let go of the burden of this solid, separate sense. It takes so much energy. It takes so much energy to hold that. Does anyone see the movie Birdman? It's great. I, I, who liked it? I, I, mean, it's, I liked it a lot. <laughs> so, okay. So for those who saw, there's only a few people, I'll tell, I'll tell you that anyways. It's got, a, it's got a lot of Dharma in it. A, I mean, so one scene, the main protagonist is a, he's someone who is an actor and he, he's, he's producing and starring in a show on Broadway and he's got a demon from his past. It kind of hovers over him and tells him what to do and has an angry voice. So he's in his changing room and he's going to go out soon. And uh, this, this thing's hovering over him and he, he's like talking to him in an angry voice. And he starts doing some mindfulness things to work with it. So he goes, he breathes in, he says, breathing in, I feel my anger, breathing out, I smile to my anger. Right? So he's trying to work with it. And then the next little clip is you see him standing up. And he's saying, it's just a thought formation. All right, so that's, that's, does it, do people know that one? It's just a thought, right? It's not this, it's just a thought arising. And then, so it's just a thought formation. He's trying to work with it. He's saying, okay, I don't need to get so attached. So then the response from, the, from his alter ego or whatever is he says to him, I'm not a thought formation, I'm you. And that's what we believe in our solidity we believe that we are the voice of our anger or our fear or our loneliness we believe and we get stuck in that and we suffer so when we don't when we have enough continuity enough interest it starts to break apart then it is just a thought formation it is just something that has that has conditioning but arises and we we start to have a very different different relationship to it and we actually can see that it's not And that it and then we are not who we think we are in that moment. Does that seem like a relief? It does to me. (laughs) Maybe that's why I spent so many years running around the globe doing all this practice. So in the Zen tradition, um, there's a really great teaching by a master named Dogen, who um, says that the whole practice is to become intimate with experience at a very deep level. Okay? And in the Buddha's teachings, it's there's a bayi, the Bahiya Sutta says in the scene, you'll just have, there's just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. So we have so much present moment awareness. It's so continuous that there's just experience. And when there's just experience, there's no separation and there's no fixation. There can't be. So the Buddha says you can't find like you can't find a separate sense of me. When you're fully attentive, try it. When you're really attentive, even to a thought or an emotion. And when that happens, we're just not, there's no attachment. There's no attachment, time, me, and mine. It's just a natural process. So Ajahn Chah, who's a great time master, uh, said, I got to work with him a little bit. I was ordained for about a year in Thailand, and I, I worked with him some while he was still alive. Just a little bit. He wasn't talking, but he was still there. It's interesting. Uh, he said, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And if you let go fully, you get total peace. And what is that letting go? That's being so deeply in the moment that we, we let go of that sense of separation. We let go into our life. And so that's the greatest protection. The greatest protection isn't to have a skill that we can apply but it's actually to be so fully present see so clearly and deeply whew, that we let go and there's freedom right there. So in a way that's that's and then that's in a way what we practice for. Okay? That's the ultimate protection of self. To bring these two together, there's a it's really learning to live in the present moment, which is what all most of the teachings are about here, right? It's learning to live now, by now, by now. And whether that expressed itself as being caught up in past and future and taking a pause, or whether it expressed itself as being really present over time, very interested in seeing into experience, through, and having the heart open, the mind open, being like more deeply free. It's really simple. We're just living moment by moment by moment. And for me, there's a sense of really, there's a kind of humility and humbleness in putting value in being present again and again. It's just like that's where we put, we put confidence in the process of showing up. Just really showing up. I used to teach with Larry Rosenberg, who's the founder here, a lot. He was my main, he's my main Western teaching mentor. And early on, I used to just tell people in my talks. I just say, just show up. Just doesn't just show up. And he gave Matthew. It's getting a little boring, but it's it's not boring if you're really there. It's actually not boring at all. And there's a kind of there's a kind of humility in it. There's a kind of okayness, and just because we learn to relax, we learn to we embrace. Say the first foundation being more in our bodies more present, being able to work more with the energies of our minds and our hearts, then we start to we start to just can be in our skin in a way that's a little more comfortable and more present And then it doesn't matter. Then we can let go of the idealizations of what practice is supposed to be, how we're supposed to be different And we can relax into our life So Ryokan, who is um, one of my famous, my, one of my favorite um, Japanese uh, Zen poets said <coughs> Spring morning, my begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) So it's that sense of just that's what letting go. It's letting go into what's right here. He's just a foolish monk, right? Okay, we're, we're just who we are. But we become more embodied and more comfortable in the present because these energies aren't splitting us off. So there was, you think he's a foolish monk, but there's a lot of wisdom in that, right? Because he's not suffering from trying to be anything else. And one of my first teachers in India, Munindra, Used to say, if you take care of the dhamma, it'll take care of you. If you take care of the moment, it will take care of you. So there was this kind of trust, right? You learn to surrender and be really present, then that will come around, that will take care of you. But then he added, you really have to take care of the moment. <laughs> you really have to do it. So it comes back to the Buddha's instructions. How to practice mindfulness? Practice it a lot for self-protection. So then if we're protecting ourselves, taking care of ourselves, our own minds and hearts by being really present, how does this, how does this take care of others? Right? Because actually I just spent all this time taking care of self when the teaching is saying, taking care of self, I take care of others. Well, we'll start the inquiry by thinking, well, what happens when we don't take care of our hearts and our minds? Right? What happens when we are split off and we act through these energies and we don't see them? We don't have a relationship. Well, Well, look at let's look at each one of these factors. Uh, wanting mind. So I remember I used to do retreats and hike in the Sierras. I used to love doing that in, in California. And I remember one time I, was, I came off out of the mountains and I was, I don't know if I was hitchhiking or I had to rent a car and, I remember stopping at a cafe and having this like, heart-to-heart conversation with some um, teenage boy, and he just told me his whole story, and he was, he was pretty run-down, he said, he just told me this whole story of how his family had moved again, and again, and again, because his dad was really addicted to gambling, and they were living in Reno, so, so it's one of the... And I just was like, wow, this, this man is not taking care of his heart, right? He doesn't have a relationship, he can't, he's living through that, these energies. They're acting through him. And his family has suffered tremendously. So we know, we know the wanting mind when it's not in check. It's not that it's wrong, but it doesn't, if you don't have a relationship with it, you can't see. You just act out of it. So how about, that's just one example, so how about, how about the next one, which is aversion or hatred? Well, all of us probably in a little way, I don't know if all of us can, but many of us in the room probably had anger when we were kids put on us and we have we might have little parts of us where we're just closed down or we don't see clearly because we we have in we have embraced the reactivity to unsafe energy or if you look at on a big scale where does where do most wars come from greed and hatred i think just tremendous suffering that anger and aversion you see how much fighting there is on so many levels and a lot of it has very is highly rationalized but underneath you can tell people don't like each other <laughs> right they have a version it's an underlying energy that's just not being worked with and the last of them is 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 not seen clearly it's it's actually it's it's called delusion and it's it's considered the ringleader it's like the one that if you if you can see clearly you can work more easily with the others but when you can't then it's really tough the buddha has a teaching of like a rope and a snake you come along and like on a a path at dusk, and you see a you're not sure if something's a rope or a snake. And if you see it's a snake, you think it's a snake. And it's a rope, then you get all freaked out, and you shouldn't have, right? And if you think it's a, a rope but it's a snake, you get bit. So that's delusion. <laughs> so when you don't see clearly, then it it's the breeding ground for these other energies to run run amok. Okay. So we can see when these energies are not worked with, what happens? So when we do protect our minds, and we're not slaves to these energies in their different forms, then what happens? Has anyone felt a little, when they've worked a little bit, gotten a little more calm and steady and seen these energies but not seen them clearly, so you don't, we don't buy into them quite as much, what happens? Well, it's not, it's not good for those of us who need to be always entertained. and It's not dramatic. So one teaching is we have to learn how to appreciate the non-toothache. We have to learn how to appreciate the moments when our mind is not filled with its own dramas. <laughs> and even when it does have its dramas, to appreciate that there's another level that's going on. And we don't like that. If, I mean, if, if, if we appreciate that, Hollywood would be out of a job, right? So we're all drama kings and queens in our own little way. So learning to appreciate when the non-toothache, the non-greed, hatred, and delusion moments. And then, well, what, is that, what, what does that lead to? Well, do we become boring? Is it boring? What, am I supposed to practice mindfulness and become some mindfulness automaton? You know, like, is that how life plays out? Check it out. Really go into the mind and the heart when it's not colored by these experiences. They're considered overlays when it's not overtaken by them. Really learn to drop into that and check it. Look, investigate, see what's there. So what did the Buddha say was there? He said that when the mind is not clouded, it's naturally radiant. It has natural radiance in it. But you can't, you don't, you have to inve- investigate for ourselves. But take interest in this process. So then, when that happens, then when there's some peace inside, then how does that benefit others? Well, it's just a natural process. It's a natural process of creating inner safety, presence that naturally affects others. So the Dalai Lama, Tikhon Han, other great, you know, prominent Buddhist teachers say, if you want to create peace in the world, then what do you need? You need peace in the countries. If you want to have peace in the countries, you need to have peace in the, in this case, in the states. If you want to have peace in the states, you have to have peace in the communities. If you want to have peace in the communities, you have to have peace in the family. If you want to have peace in the family, you've got to have peace in your own heart and mind. And if each individual has that, when people have that, when we have that, then it's natural. You don't have to try so hard. Right. I know when, one, one of the people that used to work with me up in Newburyport, he had a son, and he had a hard time with his son. He, he was a type A, you know, worked very hard, and he was, wasn't close to the son, but he started, he started meditating, and he'd come home, and he'd sit down, and he'd meditate in the room. And then after a while, his son just started coming and sitting next to him. And his son would calm down. And the relationship changed for the better. He didn't say, son, you have to meditate. Right? So it's natural. Thich Nhat Hanh has a beautiful story from the Vietnam War when there were, it was a very rough time and people were trying to leave Vietnam and they'd take these rickety boats and try to make it to Thailand. And some would make it and some wouldn't. And it said that the boats that had at least one calm person on them, someone who was just really present, that they had a much better chance of surviving. So in taking care of self we take care of other. Natural. Taking care of others or protecting others. So these are Different translations say one says taken care of, another one says protecting. I think they both have good, good qualities in them, okay? So caring for others or taking care of others, I protect myself. So what is this not? Well, this is clearly not, uh, when we take care of others, codependence, burnout. And that can happen. And matter of fact, some people come to meditation because they're burnt out, because they've taken care of others and they've gotten, right? They've taken care of others so much uh, that they have nothing left inside. So this is not that. Um, How does protecting others protect ourselves? Well, on one obvious level, parents who protect their children, right, then they are protecting themselves because they're protecting their family unit, which they care about and they're part of. And we can take that same thing if we care for the earth, for example, and we take care of the earth, then we will be able to enjoy it. So there's one sense of protecting others when it's, and taking care of others is taking care of self. It's kind of like, they're just like an enlightened self-interest. So we take care of something bigger because we know it's going to be, we know it's going to be good for us, but it's not, it's not self-ish, In the traditional sense, like, I'm going to do that so I can get this, that, you you could do something for somebody, we do it all the time (laughs) to get something. But it's actually holding something bigger. It's saying, I'm living part of, I'm part of something bigger than myself, the family, the planet, my body, everything, many levels. Where we say, we're going to take care of what is outside, because we know that the inner and the outer are very deeply interdependent. So it's interesting when we reflect and find out where we have kind of enlightened self-interest, right and that can be it can be very very healthy protecting others is done here in terms of the qualities and what qualities did the buddha say so he said in taking care of others one takes care of self but the qualities that we have to take care of others with or bring into relationship are he said there were four patience non-harming, caring, or sympathy, actually patience, caring, uh, patience, non-harming, loving-kindness, and the last one is caring, sympathy, or compassion. And so these are qualities that we can cultivate in relation to others And it's interesting when we look at them because sometimes we can cultivate them and also sometimes we work with them because these are what we should show to others. This is what we put out in the world. Sometimes we we can use these. Sometimes we we can cultivate them and also sometimes our mindfulness practice is... is We have to use our mindfulness practice to work with them. So let's look at them very briefly. So first is patience. And... Uh, Some people have it and some people don't, right? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. For those of you who have it, how'd you get it? Well, you can try to cultivate patience, and you can't. I'm not very patient, ask my wife. Um, But actually, sometimes I'm very patient, and the reason is, is because, not because I'm patient, but because I watch my impatience. And I actually have enough mindfulness to actually see the energies of impatience and have enough space in relation to them that it manifests as patience because I'm present. So one way to create patience is to be patient, to, 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 to work with it, to try to know that quality in ourselves and to value it. Another way to work with patience is to see impatience. Okay. How many people have to work with seeing impatience more than naturally being patient? Okay, good. <laughs> it's nice. It's considered a virtue, right? If you have that, <laughs> good. The second is non-harming. And that's, one way to touch that is just this sense of, of connecting with others and knowing that every all beings, it's a classical reflection, all beings want to be happy. And as long as others aren't harming us, right, as long as they're not doing harm, we should give them we should let them be happy because all beings want to be happy and they're different but we all, we're all common in the way of wanting to be happy so we can drop into that common humanity and practice non-harming practice respect for life from that place and of course we can practice non-harming by seeing the impulse to harm verbally, physically, whatever we can, if we're present, we see that and that actually right, cultivates non-harming through seeing its opposite. The third is loving kindness, which we cultivate through metta. How many people have done metta? Like an active sense, good, generative practice, wishing well for ourselves, wishing well for others. There's a spirit of this from the the actual sutta, it's called the metta sutta, which says that, to paraphrase, one should cultivate a mind of protection, like one were protecting one's child. A mother would protect her child, her only child. With that quality of love and care, one should wish well for all beings. So it's touching the heart, that quality of real devotion, like a mother would have for her only child. You know what a mother will do for her only child, right? That love. And then systematically, one works with oneself and those that are easy or that inspire love and connection and then broadens out to be able to include all beings. But that's this quality of loving kindness. And loving kindness, so it can be done as a practice, as a generative practice. So we can do this towards others. And those of you who do it, I do it, different forms of it. It's wonderful, isn't it? It kind of greases the wheels when you're with other people because you have this generative quality of heart. So we have touching the natural radiance. It's it's tapping into that and spreading goodwill from it. But when we practice metta, it's also an opportunity to have wisdom, because if those those of us who have done retreats, loving kindness retreats, sometimes the opposite of loving kindness comes. Right? Everyone who practices metta, you always feel just full of love and light. So it can be. It's a really wonderful place to actually. Practice protecting the heart and the mind, too, to practice mindfulness, because we see what arises. We can do that with any of our practices. We actually do it, and we see what arises, and we work with it. And if we work with it skillfully, then we're protecting ourselves. So we can work, so those are ways of working with loving-kindness. And And again, if we see the opposite of loving-kindness, and and we see it, and we see it, it can be a gateway in to loving-kindness. And the last one is caring, sympathy, or... Compassion, um, and compassion is said to be like the quivering of the heart. It's a willingness to be open in the face of suffering. So uh, the translation of active compassion I like, I like very, very much because it shows the dynamic nature of caring for others, right? And it's not just, when it's combined with mindfulness, it's not just like a sitting back, so, Larry used to tell this story. He said, like, if it started, if, if there was a fire and we're all sitting here meditating and start, the roof starts to cave in or something, if you're mindful and you're doing compassion or whatever, what, what would happen? Do you just sit here and... No. You'd be the first one. Because you know what's going on, practicing wisdom, and you practice active compassion. Compassion is the sense that we... It's knowing that we're all in it together. And so we... We start to treat others in a way as if they're ourselves, they're life. And so we would, we would probably be very quickly actively engaged with trying to help people. Okay? So that spirit of caring gets translated into action when it's mixed with wisdom. So these all underlie, all these qualities underlie, um, they're the foundation for ethics. So in one way, they help us. When we care for others, it helps us because, because when we do these things, do you feel good? Like when you actually wish well for someone? Authentically. or you actually are patient with somebody? Or practice non-harming? Does that feel good? Check it out, okay? Just see. So we can get an immediate reward. And this is, so we're, when, we, when there's an education that goes on and talks like this. It's actually where our minds are conditioned in one way, and part of it is is a reconditioning. And it's asking us to investigate. If we pose our minds and our hearts differently, what happens? So see on that level. But then on a classic level, it's actually said that when we cultivate on the the path of inner freedom, that when we cultivate these qualities, that they are the foundation for ethics. Now ethics means non-harming in different ways, like non-stealing and non-killing and not acting in ways that are sexually harmful and harmful with intoxicants, okay? Um, And speaking in ways that are harmful or not true. But often ethics kind of gets a, it gets kind of a bad rap, doesn't it, for us? Like in the West, we just wanna meditate. How many people are concerned with like, kind of their ethics or they they just came to meditate? How many people are really concerned with, okay, that's good. And how people more, it's like, I want to be present and meditate. Both. Okay, and there are a lot of people that really are indifferent or asleep or something, because only about <laughs> 10% of the people in the room raised their hands, but that's okay. So one of the teachers, Manindra, from India, he, when he came over and he did these intensive retreats and he talked to people, people would just want to talk about their meditation experiences and going deep and things like that. And he said, you know, if you don't take care, if you don't like take care of your house, you know, I'm paraphrasing, like you don't take care of your own world through acting in ways that are harmonious and kind, then it's kind of like a boat that's, that's at a dock and it's, it's tied up to its mooring. And you try to row the boat and get away because you want to go out, but it's tied and you can't get out. You can't, you can't get away from the dock. And if you don't have ethics, that's often what practice is like. Because there needs to be a sense of settledness for us to relax so that we can become more continuous just think how much easier it would be to be present if we lived in a world where there was a surround of safety and harmony and respect i mean that's an imagination that's not the world we live in except we we it as much as we can so it's said traditionally that there's a path and it's called uh, ethics concentration and wisdom and these are the foundation of ethics but it's actually in Asia, this is how they teach it. It's actually called generosity, ethics, concentration, steadiness of mind, and then wisdom. That's how it works. And these qualities caring for others, these qualities are one way to look at these qualities is that they are their gift, their gifts. So I think I wrote this down. Yes. So how does one practice protecting others? By per, I mean, protecting oneself by protecting others. And this, so these qualities, he says, the gift, this is a commentary. The gift, we're giving a gift of fearlessness, which is non-harming. The gift of non-violation, right? So uh, fearlessness is patience, non-harming, the gift of non-violation, non-harming, the gift of harmlessness, again, uh, non-harming, and, and having a mind of empathy and benevolence. So we're giving gifts of fearlessness, safety, harmlessness. They're actually offerings that we have these qualities. We're making offerings. And I like that because with generative practices, they can fill us by knowing that we're actually we're doing this. We're cultivating, we're sharing our hearts in a way, the goodness in our hearts. And we're cultivating that capacity. And so that's a generosity. It's also, there's also material generosity, of course. But that generosity provides the foundation. These qualities are a foundation to be able to act in a way that's harmonious. And then the mind can settle. So don't overlook ethics, but not moralistic ethics, okay? But we, often it's, we think of it as moralistic because of our conditioning. Robert Aiken, Zen teacher says, ethics are not commandments etched in stone, but expressions of inspiration written in something more fluid than water. They're not commandments etched in stone, but expressions of inspirations written in something more fluid than water. And that's our life. That's these qualities. So it's a real exploration when we learn to to cultivate these qualities and extend them out that we, we take care. We're caring for those, we, each individual, the world that we're in. And that that nourishes the foundations in our own hearts. And those foundations help us really to steady and to see clearly. We're nourished. Okay, that's a foundation. And also, so nourishing, helping, supporting others, right? Caring for others, protecting others actively through these qualities. And then the actions that come out of them, obviously, protects ourselves in obvious ways, right, because we create this culture of safety, but in ways that we have to explore in terms of our own minds and hearts and cause and effect and see. See whether we have more buoyancy when we look at our stuff, when we've practiced generosity, when we've practiced loving kindness, when we've opened our hearts and extended. Okay? So really, we need, we kind of, (laughs) so one way is ethics, Right, and then you cultivate. And then the other side is that we need to be mindful. So that's the, kind of the Eastern approach. The Western approach is we practice mindfulness in meditation, and then we realize wow, now that I have a toehold in being present, I can, I can look at my actions a little more clearly, care about them more. Right? So we have more tools. So we can also work from the place of meditation. So then that gives us the ability through mindfulness to actually appreciate the value of ethics. Or when we're not reactive, very simply, we're practicing ethics. And so it's, it's supportive. It can move from meditation in, right? And from, from, from ethics out, or from outward action. Okay, last part. Hmm. I really like this, but it's a little theoretical, and I've I've talked for almost an hour. Do you want to hear the last part? I think it's kind of fun. Okay, good, you're not. If anyone's bored, there was enough nods, so you have to endure. (laughs) (laughs) Practice patience. Okay. Um, So we've looked at protect self, protection of self through mindfulness. Right? and how that protects others, self and others. And then we've looked at how protecting others through these qualities, right? Patience, non-harming, loving kindness, sympathy, care, compassion, how that protects ourselves. Okay? And in the deeper sense of ourself, our own inner flowering, our in- own inner cultivation of freedom. So I want to look now just at a few models to end that I think that are classical training models where we can see both of these beautifully, both these two qualities of caring for self and others and their interrelatedness, see them, see how they manifest. So the first is in what's called the six paramis, which is the perfections. It's actually a later Buddhist teaching, Um, but it's like the the qualities of the past. So there's generosity, ethics. The third one is forbearance and patience. The fourth is joyful endeavor, diligence and perseverance the fifth is mindful concent- meditative concentration and the sixth is wisdom so what does that have to do with us and what we just explored well what is taking care what is protecting others generosity right ethics forbearance patience is taking care of others And what is taking care of self? Well, it's on one way, it's, it's the concentration, it's the steadying of mind, and it's wisdom and insight, right? It's that protection of being present and seeing deeply and letting go. And the fourth of these, I like it because it, it, it goes both ways. It's joyful endeavor, diligence, and perseverance. And we, those are energies that we need to practice with ourselves, right? To protect our own hearts and minds and to protect others. So it's, it's, good as a, it's good as a training tool because what energy do we put into these? Can we bring joyful energy, endeavor, diligence, perseverance into our outer and in our realms? Okay. So that's the first one. The second one is the, the Brahma-Viharas, which is these four divine abodes that loving-kindness is one of. So does, do people know them? So loving-kindness, Compassion sympathetic joy which is taking joy and the joy of others the healthy joy of others and the last one is equanimity so how do, how do these how do these relate well the last three are, or the, the loving kindness compassion and sympathetic joy right are the last three qualities of caring for others. Right. Non-harming. okay? Okay, I'm getting confused by all these realms. Wait. <laughs> Interlocking realms. Interlocking realms. So wait. okay, so the basic point is that um, the qual- caring for others, Caring for others are these dynamic qualities of, there's four of them, and three of them are non-harming, are, sympath- are loving kindness and sympathy and compassion, okay? And those correspond to the, to the later, to, to the first three of the Brahma Viharas. The fourth of the Brahma Viharas, which is equanimity, <coughs> equanimity and patience. When you're, when you're really patient, you're a quantumist. <laughs> They're actually the same, and that's, that's a wisdom path, and that corresponds to mindfulness. So taking care of self corresponds directly to, and this, Jnanaponika uh, has a commentary on this. He says that, that's, that, that taking care of self in terms of being present, that that translates into patience and equanimity. Okay? So you're taking care, right? When you're, when you're really present, what happens? You're quantumus. So the Brahma Viharas and taking care of self and others, they're also enclosed within these. And then the last one, let me keep it really simple, okay? Is that the heart of the path of Dharma, inside and outside, it's likened to a bird with two wings do know what the two wings are? Wisdom, okay, that's taking care of self. It's taking care of the mind and the heart. And compassion, which is taking care of others. So it's said that in each of our lives, we're like, we're like a, a Dharma bird. I don't know, don't visualize yourself as a bird. Or anything. But, and that for, for, our, for our, our life to really flower, our practice to really flower, to fly, take off, then we need to have a balance of wisdom, right? Taking care of our own heart, and this sense of compassion, of these qualities in relation to others. And that it forms a whole, whole the Dharma. So it's not, there's nothing left out. There's nothing left out in that. So I hope this reflection is uh, helpful. Let's just sit for a moment, and I'll end with reading the, the words, the last words of this sutta. I will protect myself. Bhikkhus. This is the Buddha and Bhikkhus will just say as meditators, I will protect myself. Thus should the establishment of mindfulness be practiced. I will protect others. The establishment of practicing patience, non-harming, (coughs) loving-kindness, sympathy and compassion, should be practicing. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience. The reflection was helpful for your practice. Um, We have about 15 minutes or so. uh, So, if anyone would like to stay and uh, ask any questions, any comments, please do. Otherwise, you're free to leave now or leave at any point. Um, Are there any questions, comments? Thank you for listening.